Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Paolo Freire's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, was first published in 1968 and it continues to be one of the key texts for 21st century education researchers. It's a deceptively short book, but it's packed with radical ideas and has spurred generations of educators to engage in forms of critical pedagogy. In this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Carlos Alberto Torres, a distinguished research professor from UCLA, someone who knew Freire well, worked with Freire, and has written extensively on Freire and the political sociology of education for the past four decades. So Carlos is the perfect person to talk us through Pedagogy of the Oppressed. In this conversation, we take a deep dive into the background against which the book was written, the very specific context of its ideas, and how we should be engaging with the text over 50 years later. For such a short book, there's a huge amount of ground to cover. So given my initial interest into the background to how Pedagogy of the Oppressed came to be written, I first asked Carlos to tell me a little about the book that Ferrer wrote prior to Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Before this book, the book that Freire published was called Educação como Prática da Liberdade, Education of the Practice of Freedom, which was published in 1967 in Rio de Janeiro, just a year before he completed Pedagogy of the Press. Now, this is the document he produced for the application for an academic job at the Escola de Belas Artes de Pernambuco in which he started in 1959. And then this job on the history and theory of education came up and he applied. He didn't get it. Freire could not become a professor, but he, people liked him so much that made him director of the Faculty of Extension in 1961 of the same university. The Faculty of Extension was doing extensionism, which was a way to bring the culture of the university into the community. And that was very important at the time. And so this cultural extension work continued Freire's focus on adult literacy training. And, and this idea of literacy, the idea of knowing the world through the word, this is a central theme. And can you explain the link for Ferrere between adult literacy and citizenship? The question of citizenship for Freire was very simple, was literacy. Why? Because as you know, in the history of citizenship, things were created not to include, but to exclude. Even in the original political philosophy, women were never incorporated, slaves were never incorporated, the poor was never incorporated, and so on and so forth. In Brazil, with the large number of former slaves after 1888, which was the last country in Latin America to uh, liberate slaves, uh, the slaves didn't know how to read and write unless they were domestic slaves working in the household of the master. So therefore, they could not be citizens. With, with literacy training, they were become citizens. Just an example, when Freire became his experience of literacy training in, uh, in Paraíba, the state next to, to, uh, to Recife, and then in Rio Grande do Norte, which it has a little place called Angicos, 
is about 200 uh, kilometers from the coast. He was really making, testing a system that in about 70 hours will give them the proficiency of second grade of uh, literacy. So they could read some and write some. And with that, they will be voting. In synthesis, what he was doing before, he was doing political education. And so, so a couple of years later, in 1963, Ferrer moves from the University of Recife to a government job for the liberal populist Goulart government, I mean, the National Commission of Popular Culture. So, so what was the link between popular education and popular culture? The great discussion at the time was about not popular education, which was the model practiced by Freire, by popular culture. And both of them are like twin brothers or twin sisters. So the term that the Goulart move, uh, government chose to give Freire the presidency of this was the National Commission of Popular Culture, which was the one teaching literacy training. So this was important because it was the first systematic attempt in Brazil, one of the most backward countries in terms of citizenship, because it was essentially the site of the Portuguese uh, kinship and in, in exile after the French invaded uh, Portugal. So it was the last country, of course, it is speaking, it's not the country that speaks Spanish like most of Latin America, was a bit isolated country speaking Portuguese that was really becoming more quote unquote liberal. And in that context, this idea of ample open citizenship was central. So changing tack a little, I mean, there's been a lot written about the need to contextualise Freire in terms of his links to Catholicism and Christian thought in Latin America at the time. So how was Freire positioned in terms of the church and Christian socialism? And in particular, this idea of the theology of liberation. Catholic, per se, because Freire was, until the end of his life, Catholic, but also because he was very appealing to the traditional Protestant communities. I want you to know that what Freire was doing was on behalf of theology of liberation. I don't want to discuss theology of liberation, it's very well known, but I will say one sentence. It was the preferential option for the poor. And this preferential option for the poor was a challenge to the dominant elites, all of them Catholic in Latin America, that were using the church as a way to consolidate their privileges. In that context, the theology of liberation was exactly the antidote. And this antidote was essentially going into the poor neighborhoods, going into the favelas, going to the shanty towns and work with the poor. So you have kind of workers, priests, and so on. This was also emulated in the theology of liberation for the traditional Protestant churches. It was not specific of the Catholic church. And, and the other thing that shaped the writing of Pedagogy of the Oppressed was Freire being forced out of Brazil. I mean, the aftermath of the 1964 military coup and being exiled to Chile. I mean, how significant was Freire's time in Chile? When he got to Chile, that's where he wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed because he was put in jail after the coup of 1964. Then he began to put together all these learnings and essentially... Pedagogy of the Press is the continuation of education and the practice of freedom, but more politicized, more radical, with a better understanding of Marxism, because Santiago de Chile was the cultural, social sciences mecca of Latin America, and because 
it was one of the most sophisticated, solid democracies of Latin America with particular actions from the communists and, and the socialist party that were absolutely a kind of prefiguration of what then become the Euro-communism style. When he was professing education, the practice of freedom was education is an ethical act. What he is professing in pedagogy of the press is education is a post-colonial ethical act. And this idea of seeing pedagogy of the oppressed is rooted in the context of colonialism and religious, economic, political, cultural context of Brazil seems, seems key. So how context-specific is pedagogy of the oppressed? Freire wrote it based on his experiences in Brazil and Chile, but it quickly travelled across Latin America. And I mean, it's now seen as being globally applicable. So I mean, how important is this original context? Here, I want to emphasise that Freire have always said that anything he said need to be contextualized. What he's saying is not an off-the-shelf medicine. It has to be contextualized. So in that context, it was contextualized. It was contextualized in the uh, struggle for freedom in Latin America. It was contextualized in the idea of revolution, but Freire opposed uh, violence uh, systematically. Third, it was contextualized in an attempt from Freire to reivindicate what I will call dialogical democracy. Freire was simultaneously advocating the question of classes struggle as a way to confront the power of the elites, but also was advocating democracy as the only system that will create a systematic model of uh, political configuration for all the working classes and beyond. So in that context, then it is very contextual. But in, in, in other ways, in the way it was written and how it touched a core is because pedagogy of the oppressed created the conditions for an understanding of education as a political act. This was not new for Freire because Freire was doing political education before. So, so many people would consider this idea of education as a political act, as a kind of universal truth. But I mean, why do you think pedagogy of the oppressed reverberated so well and continues to reverberate so well all around the world? I mean, how does it speak to so many people? Why it reverberates so well worldwide? I think because the world was ripe for a book of this nature. In my opinion, the critical uh, arguments in the US, in Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, were pretty much, uh, I mean, in Europe and theology, you were talking about the death of God, the theology of the death of God. While here you have the theology in education of the death of the teacher who is authoritarian. So the whole banking education model is a systematic critique of authoritarianism. Why? Because it was an attempt to avoid what Freire called speaking about uh, peasants, the culture of silence. If you put it systematically, go back to your own experience as a student in elementary secondary school. The same to me in Latin America. The teacher have the voice, you have no voice. The teacher have the knowledge, you have no knowledge. The teacher have the culture, you have no culture, and so on and so forth. So with this model, what Freire is trying to do is to catapult the popular knowledge into a central component 
of pedagogy per se. This central knowledge is a combination because Freire never wanted to avoid the sciences. Quite the contrary, his, his humanism is scientific humanism. And at that point then, Freire was trying to do this, was trying to articulate a whole model of understanding of education. So to, talking about this model of education, the idea of banking and the, the death of the authoritarian teacher, there are some really radical ideas in Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And, and there's so much we could talk about in terms of this model of education being put forward. But one thing I wanted to touch on was, was the foregrounding in Chapter 3 of participatory action research and how this very practical process that a lot of teachers were very, very familiar with corresponds with the theoretical thrust of the first two chapters. So, so could you take us through from the theory of chapters one and two into the main message in chapter three of what educators can actually do in the classroom? The first two chapters is a kind of theory and meta-theory, which is built on the tension between the master and the slave. It's a very Hegelian book, but with a lot of mixture here and there of other great thinkers, Kant on the one hand, certainly Marx on the other hand, but those two chapters in itself constitute the most sovereign foundation of Freire pedagogy. Chapter three, however, is different. Chapter three brings to play the notion of thematic research, which is part of a model of uh, research that was created by Freire, Orlando Falsborda, jointly with Camilo Torres, who died fighting in the mountains with the guerrilla. And the idea was to give the voice to the people. So what it essentially is this notion of participatory action research. Participatory because the voice of the subject that is being interviewed plays a major role. Action, because it's not only about getting research and giving it to somebody, but getting research as an intervention. And then research, because it also speaks about who owns this knowledge. So the participatory action research is A, a challenge to who owns the knowledge of research, B, a challenge of the voice of the researchers as the ultimate evaluator of that knowledge, C, an actual intervention, in my opinion, Every time you do participatory action research in a community, you are making a specific intervention and things happen. Yeah, yeah, this is a book to inspire you to make things happen, definitely. I'm really interested in what we now read as chapter four. I mean, chapter four is great, but it does seem to be written in a very different register to the other three chapters. Chapter four was not originally written, was part of a response to the uh, critique of his friends. And... Obviously, his friends in general were exiled Brazilians who were all people from the Catholic, left Catholic church or Marxist or socialist. It is then what I will say is a kind of afterthought, but a very interesting afterthought because allowed Freire to continue evolving in that part of work. And my sense is that pedagogy of the press continue to be re 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 read and rewritten by Freire 
throughout his whole life. So, it, yeah, it definitely is a living text, and it's really useful to have in mind when, when reading the book now. now. Now, reading Pedagogy of the Oppressed in the 2020s, it, it clearly comes across as a book of hope, but it also seems to highlight to me the hopelessness that a lot of people in education can sometimes slip into when it comes to facing up to the prospect of any, any real change. Now, Freire talks about the need for us to overcome our fear of freedom. I mean, could you talk a little about the centrality of hope and freedom to the book? But one of the central elements is utopia. What Freire did is to go into the political philosophies well established in the West. He's certainly a critical child of the Enlightenment and therefore endorsing a critical modernist tradition. Uh, and for him, utopia was connected with the idea of, of hope. So in synthesis, hope and critique goes hand in hand. Hope and deception, no. Hope and cynicism, no. And those are the things that we all the time struggle with as teachers, right? Freire was essentially a man of hope, an immense man of hope. So is it possible not to have fear of freedom? No, but tell me, is it impossible not to have fear of anything? We are constantly fearing everything. You, you see, uh, when somebody jump on top of the table when they see a mouse, well, freedom, freedom is a little bit more complicated than seeing a mouse. But technically, the question of fighting for freedom can never cease. It's the center fall of the struggle for dialogical democracy. So in that context, uh, teachers have to be connected with freedom, have to be able to understand that what they do is allow the students to be free and by them be free, you become free. Yeah, this, this idea of allowing students to be free is the spirit of the book that we shouldn't lose sight of. Now, now, a lot of the language and ideas in this book actually seem like very familiar aspects of contemporary education, you know, dialogic learning, creative learning, learning communities. So I mean, are educators who are using these approaches in their day-to-day -day practice automatically engaging in critical pedagogy, even if they don't fully realise it? Uh, we are talking about dialogical democracies. We are also talking about learning communities. What Freire invented without that title were learning communities. And we all the time talk about learning communities. Learning communities is a celebration of thought court freedom as expressed in the daily life of people that connect their own experience and knowledge with the experience and knowledge of the social sciences or the sciences or the arts or the music, whatever you are teaching. And in that context, even if you know that you cannot offer a full dinner, let me use this metaphor, I love to eat. You cannot offer a full dinner, but you wet the palate. You offer an appetizer. See, when you go to a good restaurant, the good restaurant know that you may not be fully hungry. So they give you free of charge, some olives and some other things, voila. You eat a little bit of cheese, particularly me and some olives, I'm hungry automatically, so I consume more. It's a very good strategy to sell. But on the other hand, you can use a similar model by offering the students a beginning of understanding. If people begin to read Pablo Freire, 
as I have heard many, many times, they find a language that speaks to them. Yeah, no, no, this is a book that definitely speaks to a lot of people. Now, now, you've probably read Pedagogy of the Oppressed more closely than most people. So, I mean, given your intimate knowledge of this book, what do you consider the things to be that most people miss out on when they read Pedagogy of the Oppressed? What do people not pick up on? What tends to get lost? If you ask me what people don't see very clearly in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, I would say at least they don't see the importance of psychoanalytical work, particularly through, from, through Freire. I haven't seen a single dissertation on Freirean psychoanalysis. Secondly, people don't see the importance of Freire arguing for a revolution without fully analyzing heuristically the question of alienation. And my sense is that he did produce a new epistemology, but he could not at the time apply that own epistemology to his own world. Now we have the opportunity. Now we have the epistemology of the global south. Now we have an epistemology of the post-colonial tradition. Now we have the opportunity of do what Freire was trying to do with very little technical components at the time, great intuitions. And remember, in psychology, intuition plays a major role in understanding your subconsciousness so in a way, Freire was um, a pioneer of this idea of not having fear of freedom because freedom is the ultimate proof of humanities. So just a couple more questions. And this idea of humanity of education actually makes me think about the current state of education and what many people would see as the hollowing out of, of education, particularly the neoliberalization of um, education and schooling. Now, Freire was writing in the face of one fairly obvious oppressor, Brazil's authoritarian right-wing military governments. But I mean, what would he have to say about the corporate reforms of education? I mean, the rise of market forces, the rise of market actors. You know, the whole rise of, of kind of commercialization of education. Well, money talks. Uh, the most powerful theory is the one that has money behind. So Freire was not very skeptical, but he was a very strong critic of neoliberalism. You know, in my last conversation with him, probably a day or two before he passed away. He died after an operation in the recovery room. Uh, I was talking to him from, from, from the US on the phone and we we're going to write a book about reinventing Paulo Freire for the 21st century. And I asked him, Paulo, do you think now about the topics of this book, the chapters of this book, and he said to me, look at the way my last conversation, how we ended. He said to me, Carlos, we have to criticize neoliberalism. It's the new demon of our times. And at that moment, the conversation collapsed because I was getting to the airport. I was flying to Europe that same day. Too many communications. I was in my car. That was the last time I talked to him. That was his last mantra, neoliberalism as the um, new demon. And aside from the threat of neoliberalism, I mean, where else is the Frarian project going now? I mean, there's a large community of scholars and activists that have picked up his tradition and are running with it. So, I mean, what are the next threats and the next oppressors that, that need to be addressed? 
We created a model of social justice education. We are not finished. We are still behind. We need now to create, in addition, a social justice for the planet. What we need to do is to add education for sustainability. And that is what Freire was trying to do at the end of his life. He talked to me, he talked to Gadotti, who was his best friend, he's one of my best friends. He said to me, to, to, to Gadotti, and we did that with a student of mine in the Wiley book. There is one chapter not written in pedagogy of the press, it's eco-pedagogy. So we wrote that chapter in this book, using all the Freirean indications throughout his life. So in a way, the dialectic of the local and the global continues to be the centerpiece of all the work that Freire did and all the work that we should be doing. Yes, yeah, the dialectic of the local and the global is clearly the most pressing issue for us now in the 2020s, and I'm imagining for, for much longer from then onwards. So, so just, just two final questions. Um, first, you spent a lot of time with Freire during the 1980s and the 1990s. How did he make sense of how pedagogy of the oppressed was beginning to be taken up during his lifetime? I mean, how did he react, how, how did he react to the attention that the book began to attract? 1983, I invited him to come to Stanford where I was doing my PhD for a seminar. By the time 83, Freire was not that well known as it's now, but he was already getting inroads into the different progressive groups, especially in California, which is a very liberal state. And he came, so we have a great time. He spent a month with us and we had all sorts of conversations. And I took him to the uh, Stanford bookstore. So we were walking in the Stanford bookstore and I looked at Pablo and said, see, here is your book, Pedagogy of the Press. And it was there, very visible. And he looked at me and said, Carlos, when I see Pedagogy of the Press, I want to say good morning. Because it was not him anymore. Pedagogy of the Press is what the reader was supposed to do with that book. He has done his, his work. So in terms of his legacy, that was just part of his work. And when we are ready to meet our maker, we should tell him or her, we try our best. And I think he thought in those terms. Yep, yeah, we can only try our best. So, so just as a closing thought, I mean, there seems to be more interest today in pedagogy of the oppressed than ever before. So I mean, what, what do you think Freire would have made of his legacy? In one of my many interviews with him, I said to him, pretty much the question you pose, but I put it in a much more different way because Freire was very sensitive. He was a poet, right? So very sensitive to the rhythm of the words. I said to him, Pablo, when you die, when you die, and I use this gesture with my hand showing that I'm talking about in a very distant future, when you die, what would you expect people to say about you. He was 65 or 66 at the time. He said to me, Carlos, ah, another thing about Freire, he will never talk to you without touching your arm, your shoulder. So he put like always a hand on my shoulder and said, you know, Carlos, what I want people to say about me is Paulo Freire leave loved and wanted to know. 
And that is a perfect obituary for me.